sorry. So I apologize to the sisters. They just probably didn't. The question was um, uh, that some people attribute to the Prophet wasallam that he said that he who uh, does not call kufr or does not call a kafir a kafir, then he's a kafir. Is this true? And I said, no, it's not. I mean, this is not a statement of the Prophet ﷺ, but it's the consensus of the Ummah, consensus of the scholar, that he who does not call a kafir a kafir, then he is a kafir. And so, so what does that mean? Well, what it does mean is that if there is an unbeliever, and that unbelief is something which is agreed upon, like the Christian or the Jew, okay, whoever says that the Christian or the Jew or the idol worshiper is not a kafir, then he's a kafir. But let us say there's an issue in which there's a difference of opinion. Like a situation like with a person who forsakes prayer. Even though the companions of the Prophet ﷺ are in agreement that the person who forsakes prayer is a kafir, and this is the opinion of, for instance, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, there are other scholars of the Ummah who saw that the person who forsaked the prayer is not a kafir, like Imam al-Shafi. Now, so therefore here, this rule is not applicable. Because one could not say now, if somebody held to the view of Imam al-Shafi, and you held to the other view, the view of the Prophet's companions and Imam Ahmed, that the one who forsaked prayer was an unbeliever. You cannot now call those who do not view the person who forsakes a prayer, do not view that he's an unbeliever, you cannot call them kuffar. Because this is an issue in which there's a difference of opinion. Likewise, when you come to an issue where concerning the ruling concerning a specific individual, is he an apostate or not? Ibn Arabi, who was a uh, Sufi who in his writings uh, said that everything is a law. He was, you know, I mean, there's some Sufis that have this concept that there's no creator or creation, but that we are all manifestations of the creator. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a belief, a philosophical belief. Anyway, the point is, is that, you know, Ibn Arabi was a, a person who called to this, he wrote books to this, and 70 scholars in his time and after his time, you know, gave fatawa that he was a kafir. He, he apostated by having this belief and preaching to belief. He also said that he believed that the Prophet Muhammad came to him in a, in a dream and gave him some revelation and so forth. Now, other scholars did not impute unbelief to him because either they were unaware of his state or because they had felt that maybe he had repented before his death or they felt that maybe you know, he was writing in some sort of mystical language and you couldn't take him literally, you know, that he, you know, that his words were not, you know, to be taken literally but figuratively. I mean, they, they put forth some excuse. Those scholars who considered Ibn Arabi a kafir did not come and say to those scholars who did not consider Ibn Arabi to be a kafir, well, you're a kafir, okay? So now we come to the issue of the rulers of what, that you brought up, okay? Let us say now that there's a ruler and there's two groups of, of people. One people say that this ruler has committed unbelief and he's now an apostate. Another group of people say he is not an apostate. Now, so long as they are in agreement of what is Islam and what is apostasy in general, you know, then 
you know, neither group can call the other group to be unbelievers, or one group can call the other group to be chawadish, you know, it, it, just for that matter itself. Because what it is is now they've differed concerning the applicability of this ruling towards this situation. You see what I'm saying? I mean, we agree that, you know, we're in agreement, for instance, that, you know, that Islam is this, and Iman is this. And now we want to say, it, when we want to apply it to this situation, does this apply or not? Well, here, it's not that we're discussing, we have a difference of opinion of what is the nature of Islam or Iman, but we're differing concerning, you know what I'm saying, the applicability of this concerning the situation. So one group of people might have a better understanding of what that situation is, and another group of people might have a better understanding or a weaker understanding. And so therefore, they're, they're, how they look to the situation differs. Okay? Uh, that's why, when, for instance, when you had the situation of the Mongolians, when they became Muslims, um, were they Muslims or were they unbelievers? You know, Ibn Taymiyyah sort of looked at them and he said that even though they took their shahada, they were still unbelievers and the Muslims should fight them. You know, the other scholars in his time didn't hold that opinion. They, they, in fact, when they were in a, many groups of scholars in Damascus felt that this was fitna. That two groups of Muslims were going to fight and the best thing for the Muslims were not to get involved. But Ibn Taymiyyah, he said, no, that those people who, you know, considered them not to be unbelievers, the problem is, is they didn't really understand how these Mongolians were in their practice of Islam. That they, that, you know, even though they said the shahad, they still didn't pray, they didn't fast, they didn't observe the sharia, <coughs> they had their own laws, so as a result, they're unbelievers. So the point is, is that, you know, the problem is with, with this group of people that you're referring to is that they do not see anybody disagreeing with them, except that they assume that the person has disagreed with them because he's rejected some article of faith. And that's, that's due to because of their, their lack of comprehension of the religion of Allah. A person might disagree with a person because, not because they differ in the principles, but they differ in the applicability of those principles into that situation. You know what I'm saying? And either could be right or they could both be wrong, I mean, depending upon the circumstance. So, Right. It's an example of what I didn't, I didn't quite understand. Well, it's an ex- it's an example of it's an example. I mean, the, the one who forsakes prayer is an example that if there's a group of scholars, you know, who view that the person who forsakes prayer is not an unbeliever but just a sinner, right? And there's another group of scholars who view that the person who forsakes prayer to be an unbeliever. By implication, those who view him to be a sinner cannot be called unbelievers because they did not consider the kafir to be a kafir. Because it's, when you do not consider the kafir to be a kafir who, concerning his kufr, you know, and concerning him being a kafir, there is an ijma, there is no disagreement. You know, then that's rules applicable. Like, like those who Allah has... Like, if somebody came to you and said that Fir'aun was not a kafir, then we say that he's a kafir. If somebody said to you that Iblis was not a kafir, we say, yes, this person is a kafir. Somebody said that Abu Lahab was not a kafir. We say, yes, this person is a kafir. Somebody said that Jews and Christians were not kuffar. We say, yes, this person is a kafir. But if somebody comes and says that concerning a person after their agreement that, you know, iman is belief, statement, and action increases and decreases, okay? They're in agreement to these principles. But yet they do not see that this principle of apostasy has applied to this specific case, right? 
They could be mistaken or they could be correct. So you couldn't call them in that you know situation to be kufar. Yes. Right. How are we supposed to view that? And especially when, you know, often we take a lot of what's said from the various countries, you know, take some of their rulings, some of their fatwa, but we see them holding down the Sharia and using it to their own ends. And at the same time, we see river and other things which is against the Sharia, and we're turning a blind eye to it. I mean, surely we should be standing up and saying, Mamuka, Mamuka. No, I agree. I mean, you know, I mean, the brothers saying that, you know, why do we turn a blind eye to certain countries and they, you know, go against the Sharia? I agree. I mean, we should say a munkar is a munkar. I mean, you know, one of one of the the qualities of the Muslim is that he speaks the truth. You know, I mean, he, and that and that's part of you know testifying to the truth that one you know does not hold back that testimony, even if the testimony is against himself. So one should should stand forth in the truth, but. The question is, is now, when a country or a group of people, a society, right, I mean, they don't apply the aspects of the Sharia. The question is, is that has their forsaking of the Sharia reached the degree where they've now become unbelievers, apostates, they've become like Jews and Christians, or are they sinful Muslims? I think all of us will recognize the difference, right, that if you saw a Muslim on the road, okay, who is weak in his faith? I mean, he comes to the masjid occasionally, but really he's, you know, he's not, you know, he's indulging in different forms of sins and so forth, right? We all recognize that he's still a Muslim as opposed to maybe the person standing next to him at the bus stop or the train stop, right? Who's a Jew or a Christian. We recognize the difference between the two. We say, this person is a Muslim, but his faith is weak. This person is an unbeliever. He doesn't accept Iman at all. So now when we come to society, the question is the same thing with that society, these Muslim societies. You know, have they reached the degree where they are equivalent to, you know, I mean, British society, American society, you know, people not, who are non-Muslims, you know, in, in, by nature? Or are they question, are they still weak Muslims? I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. And what I'm trying to say is that, you know, on the, for the most part, you know, that, you know, the importance of calling something or somebody an apostate, right, is only if you can enforce the law of apostasy. Otherwise, it just becomes an academic discussion, to which no action, you know, um, results, and at the same time, it, it probably leads to dissension, because people will differ concerning the ruling, you know what I'm saying? I mean, now, if you are to say that, for instance, a certain ruler is a kafir, He's apostated, okay? And, you know, the Islamic ruling is that the Muslims cannot be ruled by a, an apostate ruler, a non-Muslim ruler, so he has to be removed by force. So, if you as a Muslim, or a group of Muslims, cannot remove him by force, the, you know, the, the delving into this issue, 
in itself is, is not, I mean, of much benefit. I'm not saying it has no benefit. I'm just saying it's not of much benefit. And that there is probably, to put your energies in your, and focus your, your energies in, in, more, uh, in other issues is, is probably more beneficial than to raise this issue. Because if you cannot act upon it. Now, yes. Right. Well, no, the root, the root of the problem is with the people themselves. Because, you know, the, the, the people who make the policies, you know, it's one thing when there's a ruler who... I'll, I'll give you an example. Another example from history, so that way we, can, we, can, we won't have uh, much, um, um, you know, um, there wouldn't be any dissension upon it. Uh, you know, at one time there, in Egypt there was a ruler called Al-Hakam Bi-Amrillah. Uh, and uh, this person uh, was a Shi'i, but that's not the point. I mean, the point is that he eventually called to his self-worship. Okay. And if you read his history when he was ruling Egypt, he used to do stuff like he would make a, 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 a law during the day saying that whoever works at day will be executed. That everybody has to work at night. So people, you know, they wouldn't want to get killed, so they would all start working at the night, at the night time. And then, all of a sudden, he would switch the law without telling anybody, and he says, no, I made a new law that whoever works at night is going to be executed, so he just go go out into the town with his his into Cairo with his uh, you know his uh, band of you know uh, his like his militia, and they would just start executing people for working at night. Uh, and he used to do you know he used to switch like this. He he, he built a a uh, a big like college and called all the scholars to come and teach there, and he did that for like two three years, and then when, one day he just decided to collapse the walls of that institution upon them and kill them, you know. Uh, he used to make it that when people um, would hear his name, you know, they would have to fall down in sajda, okay, under penalty of death. And that even he was at that time, he was the, I mean, he had ruled Mecca and Medina, I mean, also besides Egypt. So people in Mecca and Medina, the Prophet's mosque and the Masjid al-Haram, whenever they used to hear his name during the khutbah, they would have to stand up, okay. So this was how he was. Now, so... And, and he, I mean, he was like, uh, <coughs> the Egyptians, they have a, a food which, they're, which is a, a popular food they eat called melukhiya. It's a type of, um, uh, it's almost like a type of spinach or something like that, right? Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a popular food which is, which is eaten there. So because he was Shi'i, uh, you know, they had, the, they had the notion that Aisha used to like to eat that food. So it was forbidden under penalty of death to eat this type of, like, you know, spinach or something like that. Okay. So, you know, now, but, but that's not the point. I mean, the point is not his history. The point is, is that when Salahuddin al-Ayyubi came and put an end to that state, because what Salahuddin al-Ayyubi did was first, before doing the Crusaders, he dealt with this government for us to sort of put the Muslims in shape. You know, Muslims in Egypt fought Salahuddin al-Ayyubi 
I mean, there were thousands of people to keep the state propagating. Even though their ruler was, I mean, insane. Was a madman. I mean, he, you know, you know, he would make these rules. You know, like you know, if you go out in the, at, in the morning, you know, then one day if you go, you'll be you know killed. And then one day you're supposed to go out at night. And if you read his history, it's just all these you know things. He's a dubious. He was like, it's like almost some sort of like brainwashing of the people. So they would be constantly in fear and so like. But yet when it came, when Salahuddin Ayyubi came, some I mean, there was an army which fought and defended him and so forth. So my point is, is that you know, Al Hakim bil Amrillah would have never been able to rule Egypt and would have never been able to enforce that unless there were sufficient people in his country who were willing to follow that program voluntarily. And that's why when Salahuddin and Ayyubi came, they even put a resistance because they wanted that program to, you know, continue. So these rulers in our countries, you know, they, they wouldn't be there had there not been a sufficient, you know, base for them in the country. I mean, do not think it's just, you know, five or six henchmen, you know what I'm saying, and they're able to, you know, I mean, control. There is a sufficient base of support for them to be able to to control uh, this thing. And that's why, I mean, the Muslims, you know, are being punished by Allah with these rulers. So, you know, not that the rulers themselves are to be absolved of any sort of fault. I mean, no matter how much you curse them and, you know, you, you revile them, you haven't said enough regarding them. Okay? But the point is, is that they're a reflection of this, their societies. All right. So, so the question then is that you know you know you have to have then in order to remove this evil, you know, you have to have enough people who are committed to the good, so that the the balance switches and that they have the upper hand, you know. And, and this is what the Prophet ﷺ said that you know that you know Islam would begin strange and it would return strange, and so blessed are the strangers, you know. You know, the Prophet ﷺ said in one of the narrations of the Hadith, or in one of the commentaries of the Hadith, excuse me, not, not a narration, that in the beginning, you know, you would find in a tribe of people, when the Prophet ﷺ first gave his da'wah, one or two Muslims. Okay? So it was something strange. Just like now, I mean, I would imagine that in your extended family, I mean, how many Muslims are there in, the, in your whole... Just yourself, right? So, I mean, if you went back three generations, let's say you have an extended family of 40 or 50 or 100 people, you know what I'm saying, one Muslim. So this is something strange, right? Now, then Islam grew so that the majority of the tribe were not just Muslims, but were pious people. And so that the wicked person in the tribe would be one or two wicked people in the tribe, and they would be in a situation of, in the, you know, low and dis despised and having no you know, really authority and so forth. But then, the opposite would come back again, like we're now today. So you come to a tribe of people, you know what I'm saying, I mean, you can go to a tribe of Arabs or a tribe, of, a big family of, you know, of, uh, you know, people from Nigeria and so forth, and you look at the whole family, you know what I'm saying, three or four, you know, households, you know, an extended family, and you might only find one pious person, two pious people in the whole family, and the rest of the whole the family is, you know, are wicked people. So, amongst their own family, they're in a position of weakness, and they're despised, and so forth. So, until the people of good, you know, band together, and strive for this religion, become serious about it, I mean, this situation, abnormal situation, will continue. Okay, so, okay, so we, I guess we can um, get back to the Aqidah. So, uh, we're at point number 61. Uh, Ibn Qudama said... Uh, that it is required to have faith in all what the messenger 
sallallahu alayhi wasallam has informed about and has authentically has been authentically transmitted upon him concerning that which we have witnessed or is hidden from us we know that all what he has informed us of is real and true whether we comprehend or are ignorant of it and we have not been exposed to its real meaning so this is a very important principle that you know many Muslims you know fail to understand or many Muslims have a problem with Whatever the Prophet ﷺ has told us, we're required to believe in. As long as that has been authentically reported upon the Prophet ﷺ. In other words, the hadith is what we call sahih. It's not a weak hadith. I mean, the transmission is, is affirmed to the Prophet ﷺ. Whether we have witnessed it or it is hidden from us. In other words, whether we've seen that with our own eyes or it's something which we have not seen. You know, whether... Uh, we understand you know, it or we don't understand it. Because the Prophet has told us it, we believe in it. Okay? So here's two issues. When we say that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, we're really saying four things. Okay? And this is what we should know. First, we're saying that we're going to believe in whatever he says. The second thing he says, we're going to obey him in whatever he commands. The third thing is that we're going to leave whatever he prohibits. And the fourth matter is that we're going to, you know, love him, and finally, fifth, we're going to worship Allah according to his law, according to his sharia, according to his uh, sunnah. Now, so whatever the Prophet ﷺ tells us, we must believe in. And that doesn't mean that, we, that, that reason doesn't have a role at all, but rather, you know, these matters are matters of the unseen. And so therefore, you know, our minds in and of themselves cannot understand its reality. And that's why Allah sent to us a prophet to, to tell us these matters. Because if, if our minds itself, you know, if we could by ourselves just through reflection know the truth, if we could by reflection ourselves know who Allah is, know why Allah created us, know what is our role in life, know what will happen to us after death, there would be no reason to send prophets and messengers. But because these are matters of the unseen, Allah sends to us a prophet who conveys and teaches us that. We use our mind and our senses in order to see, to make that initial determination, whether that person who claimed prophethood is true or not. Whether the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa is, because when, when the prophet appeared, he said, I'm a prophet, you know, sent by Allah. So that's a claim. Anybody could make that claim, Right. But so we can use our mind to test that claim and see if that claim is true or false. Once we hear from the Prophet وسلم, I mean, once we, we accept that he is the Prophet, we have, we have seen that the evidences would show that he is truly sent by Allah, then whatever he tells us, we know it to be the truth. So long as we can confirm that he said that. Because if he's a Prophet from Allah, that means, that means what he's going to tell us is from Allah himself. And so that's where people get confused. And so, uh, he gives an example like the hadith of Isra and Mi'raj. I mean, it's mentioned in the Qur'an, in, the, in Surah 17, the first ayah about the Mi'raj. But, what about the Isra? I mean, the Prophet ﷺ, one evening, uh, went to sleep, and then he was taken from Mecca to Jerusalem in one night, where he led the prophets in prayers. And then from Jerusalem, he raised, was raised to the heavens, and he ascended through the, the seven heavens until he 
reached the seventh heaven and Allah, you know, informed him of the five obligatory prayers and then he returned back to Mecca that night. Now, when the Prophet informed the people of Mecca what happened, people of Mecca, you know, found that incredulous. They couldn't believe it. They rejected it. Okay? And they, you know, not because they, they, to them it was, you know, it takes us three months to go by our caravans or by camel from, Jeru- from Mecca to Jerusalem and back. How could you have gone in one night? I mean, that was their argument. Abu, when, they, when they went to Abu Bakr, the Prophet's companion, and said, Did you, do you hear what your friend is saying? Abu Bakr says, I believe him on something which is more amazing than that. I believe to him that a revelation comes to him from the heavens. So if I believe that a revelation comes to him in the heavens, right, then how could I not believe to him that the one who sends him a revelation cannot, you know, take him on a journey in one night? And so, so the point is, is that when now when we hear something that the Prophet ﷺ tells us that the Prophet ﷺ, for instance, he told us in a hadith which we'll come to that, you know, when a person dies, you know, and he's left in his and he's placed in his grave, and the people walk away, he hears the footsteps of the people walking away. And then two angels come and prop him up and ask him three questions. Who did you worship? You know, what was your religion? And who was your prophet? Now, if somebody said to, to you, well, you know, I, I can't accept that. I find that difficult to believe in because, you know, my mind, I can't see how could a person who's died, how could he hear the footsteps of those people who walked away? I mean, his, you know, his brain activity has ended and so therefore, you know, I mean, how... You know how are the you know electric uh, you know uh, signals being sent? And, you know it's from his ear to the nervous system to his brain. How how is that all going to happen? You know what we say, right? Is that well, first of all, it's a matter of the unseen. You know, I mean, just because he hears the footsteps, it doesn't mean that he hears the footsteps in the same way that you he would hear footsteps in this world. You know, through your ear and so, so forth. But but more importantly is that w- the Prophet sallallahu told us this, and we know we have used our reason to determine that he's a prophet of Allah. We believe that he is the prophet of Allah, Azawajah. You know, I mean, we, we, we have proven to ourselves that. So since he's told us that, then therefore, you know, what he's told us, we believe it to be truth. And the same thing with the Qur'an. I mean, now if you believe you've used your reason and you have come to the determination that this Qur'an is the book of Allah, that it couldn't be the book of, of a man, and you find then inside it a passage where Allah says that on the day of judgment in paradise there will be a river of flowing honey. Now, somebody can say, well, how, do, how could honey flow in, in paradise? I've never seen a river of flowing honey in this world. You know, I can't believe in that. No. If this is the book of Allah, you've used your reason to determine that this is Allah's literal words, the creator of the heavens and the earth, so then what's inside it is going to be truth. And so therefore you're going to accept it. So the point is, is that Islam does not tell us do not use your reason. No, use your reason. But you use your reason to, to judge the message initially, whether it's true or not. Once you've made the determination that the message is truly from God, and that the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that Muhammad is truly the prophet of Allah, and the Quran is truly the book of Allah, then whatever comes to you from that, these are from the matters which are un- from the unseen it's beyond human comprehension so you just submit and you accept it this is different than what the Christian is when the Christian says you know when you ask him about Trinity and he says well 
you know, I don't have to understand it because it's just a matter of faith. It's just a mystery. You see, this is different because what Islam teaches us, Islam will not teach us something which is goes against reason. It will teach us something which reason cannot verify because it's beyond reason, but that it doesn't contradict reason. I mean, for instance, that 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 you say that three three gods are one and one are three, it goes against a reason because the mind cannot accept how three could be one and one could be three. So this is something which contradicts reason. Likewise, that how could he be the creator of the heavens and the earth and at the same time be crucified? I mean, this is something which reason cannot accept, you know. So, but at the same time, when you come to a matter of the unseen in Islam, like a river of honey, this is not something which reason finds to be something which is not possible. What reason finds is something which reason cannot prove. In other words, I mean, if you were to think about well, in the hereafter, you know, reason itself cannot lead you to the knowledge that there is a river of honey. But, you know, is it possible that there is a river of honey? Yes, because, you know, I mean, why not? I mean, if there is a river of water, why could there not be a river of honey? It's not something which, you know, which reason finds to be, you know, incomprehensible, not, not, which reason finds to be contradictory, as opposed to the beliefs of, like, the Christians. So that, that's the difference. So, so what Ibn Qudama is trying to say here, he's trying to give us a very important principle which we as Muslims, uh, you know, should learn and, you know, and touch, uh, study and, and hold, is that whatever the Prophet has told us about, as long as it's been authentically transmitted upon him, you know, we should believe, whether we've witnessed it or not, you know, whether we comprehend its meaning or not. For example, the Isra and the Mi'raj. And then he mentions that this incident occurred while the Prophet was awake. And it was not a dream. For the pagans of Quraysh rejected its occurrence and found that to be far-fetched. However, they would not reject dreams. I mean, the pagans of Mecca, had the Prophet said, I had a dream that I was in, I was in Jerusalem. And they would have made, I mean, a, a big issue about it. But the fact that Prophet said, I traveled during the night from Mecca to Jerusalem and back. That's what they found far-fetched. How could that be? I mean, now if you went to somebody and said, oh, I had a dream that I was on the moon. I mean, nobody would they'll say, well, that was just it. You had a dream that you were on the moon. I mean, nobody would say, you know, would, 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 would say, you know, okay, that's fine, you know. But if you said last night, I, you know, while I was sleeping in Montedda, I went to the moon and I came back, people would say, well, hold it. That's a bit far-fetched, you know, to believe that. So that, that's the, the matter. So, and then another example, uh, Ibn Qudamah says, is the angel of death. I mean, the Prophet tells us in a hadith that when, that when the angel of death came to Moses to seize Moses' soul, Musa's soul, you know, Moses plucked out the eye of the angel of death. The angel of death returned back to, uh, to Allah, who, who, you know, restored his eye. Now, the, the question is, you know, this matter is something which is from the unseen. I mean, that the fact that, that Moses was able to pluck out the eye of the angel is something which we might not comprehend. How could that occur? But since the Prophet ﷺ told us that, and we know that the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ is truly a prophet from Allah, and he has told us that, so therefore we accept it, whether we comprehend it or not. You know, whether we've witnessed it or not. We haven't witnessed the event, right? Nor do we, we might not comprehend it, so, but we still accept it. And other examples, Ibn Qudamah says, is like the different signs appearing 
before the Day of Judgment, like the appearance of a Dajjal, the Antichrist, or the returning of the descent of Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus, the son of Mary, alayhi salam, who will kill the Antichrist, uh, a Dajjal, or the appearance of Ya'juj and Ma'juj, Gog and Magog, or the appearance of the beast, a Dabba, or the rising of the sun from the west, and similar narrations which have been confirmed upon the Prophet sallallahu I mean, these matters are all matters from the unseen. I mean, the Prophet ﷺ said that when the, when the Antichrist comes at Dajjal, you know, one of his, his trials and his tribulations will be that, you know, he will, have, he will do certain things that's, that will lead people to believe that he is Allah, or, or will lead people to, 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 um, to believe his claim that he's Allah. It's better to express it that way. One of the things he'll do is that he'll come across a people who live in a you know, in a uh, in um, an area which is a non-desert area, they have like a, you know, they have like trees and, and plants and so forth. And he will tell them, you know, do you believe that I am Allah? And they'll say no. You know, we do not believe that you're Allah. We believe that you're a Dajjal, the Antichrist, right? So he will then turn their 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 area into a desert area, and then he'll go to a desert area and, you know, he'll go to those people and say, do you believe that I'm Allah? And they'll say yes, and he'll turn their area into vegetation and so forth and trees and water and so forth so I mean this is I mean how will he be able to do this you know somebody cannot say well I can't accept that how could a man do this well the Prophet ﷺ informed us that, that that he would be able to do this that Allah will allow these things to pass upon this person's ha- hands as a test to humanity whether they believe that this person is Allah or they truly believe in Allah so it's not a question that you know how or I've never witnessed this as something in the future, but rather since the Prophet ﷺ said so, I believe in it. And this is what the principle is trying to... And, and then these are just examples he's given. Okay, so are there any questions regarding that principle, or before we go on? Yes? Well, I mean, the angel of death came to Moses... To, to seize his soul like the angel of death comes with all human beings to seize their soul the angel of death comes with his assistance to seize the soul and you know Moses felt that it wasn't time for him to die that it, he thought that he still had you know that that you know that it was decreed for him still more years to live I mean it seems that the prophets of Allah know when it's their time to die so he had felt that you know that he that it was written for him that he was to live more years so he, he, when the angel of death came to seize his soul, he was struggled with the angel of death and plucked out the angel of death's eye. So the angel of death returned to Allah, and that shows the strength of, of Moses, you know. Now, uh, and then the angel of death came back, and then Allah told Moses that to put your hand on a cow, and as many hairs uh, remain in your hand that you pull from it, you will live those many years more. And so then, you know, he lived those many years more, and then the angel of death came to him and took his soul and he died. But, is, you know, Moses, it seems, the Prophet Moses, alayhi salam, was, um, I mean, unlike normal human beings in terms of his physical strength. And, and part of that is that, um, has to do with the fact that when he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, that to see Allah azza wa jal, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to him, you know, look at that mountain, and if, if, if you can, you know, remain, then, then you will see me. And then, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifested, you know, himself to the mountain, and the mountain collapsed, and Moses became unconscious, you know. And likewise, the experience of the Prophet 
but is you know Moses it seems the prophet Moses alayhi salam was um, I mean unlike normal human beings in terms of his physical strength and, and part of that is that um, has to do with the fact that when he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, that to see Allah azza wa jal and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to him you know look at that mountain and if, if, if you can you know remain then then you will see me and then so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifested you know himself to the mountain and the mountain collapsed and Moses became unconscious you know and likewise the experiences that Moses had resulting from Allah speaking to him directly without an angelic intermediary you know resulted in Moses you know physical constitution being such that uh, stronger than what would be typical for men and that's why in a hadith the Prophet says that um, that he does not know who will be raised first you know from the grave you know would, I mean you know, when people are, of course, in the day of judgment comes and people are raised from, you know, all of humanity is raised from the grave. I mean, who's the one who comes out first, you know? Him or Moses? Because he said he will see, he will find Moses, you know, hanging to, what, to the throne of Allah, you know, during the judgment. So, I mean, it seems that the Prophet Moses, alayhi salam, I mean, his physical constitution was such that is, is unique from, for men from among human beings and it was, it was much stronger in the same way like the prophet Yusuf Joseph alayhi salam Yusuf alayhi salam I mean it seems that I mean his beauty you know his physical beauty was exceeded that which is known amongst men and that's why when he came you know he entered among the women as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran you know, I mean, the women, they, they, they were cutting their food and they started to cut their hands, you know, because they were, you know, asphyxiated by, by the beauty they saw in the Prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam. And they said, this is not, this is an angel, you see. I mean, they, they thought that because of his beauty. And the Prophet said in a hadith that, you know, that the Prophet Yusuf was given half of, what, of beauty. So, I mean, if you imagine beauty, is, you know, if you were to measure it, you know, I mean, of the, you know, half of it was given to the Prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam. So, I mean, so it's, it's, it's a beauty which, which is unique. And, 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 that's, and that's how Allah's prophets are. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, gives the prophets, you know, characteristics which, which make them, even though they're human beings, you know, which makes them stand distinct from human beings in order as a sign of their prophethood. Anything else? Yes? Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, they took those notions that Dajjal is a system. I mean, from from I mean, they took this notion from you know Christians and and from so forth, or from the Qadiyanis who, you know, opine that. But the the point is, if you look at the Hadith of Prophet Sallallahu I mean, the Dajjal is obviously a man who will call to his worship, his self-worship. I mean, the Prophet Sallallahu made it very clear. He, I mean, first of all, the Prophet Sallallahu taught us that in every prayer we should seek refuge from his trial, his tribulation. And the Prophet said that, you know, that all the prophets had warned regarding that, the Dajjal, but that he was going to tell this Ummah something which that 
no prophet told their omas that he was blind in one eye that he was you know and likewise he told us you know in some hadith the color of his eyes and he told us his stature and he told us how his hair was and the prophet told us from where he will first appear where his first call will be and what was the first lands among of the lands of the Arabs he will appear in and you know that he will head towards Medina and that you know who would be his followers and I mean and that from the, he returned from Medina he will end up in Jerusalem and that Jesus would come down and kill him and so there's all I mean these things which point to him being a man you know so to, to argue that he's um, you know that he's he's not a man and that he represents a system or you know credit cards or something like that I mean that's obviously just there's no evidence to that whatsoever you know you know that that the system that um that, that control the world and so forth you know is an evil system that it's a manipulative system that's a system which is oppressing that's true but to say then that the, what the Prophet sort of forewarned about about this trial which will appear before the day of judgment if a person who will come with you know extraordinary acts that people will start worshipping him and thinking that this is a law then that's not I mean you know that's too far going too far and twisting the words of the Prophet okay I think we can continue on to the next um, the next uh, paragraph you mentioned the point concerning obedience to the Prophet could you explain by obeying the Prophet it is Allah's pleasure that we gain or the Prophet's pleasure no we don't I mean when we when we obey the Prophet we don't obey the Prophet because of the Prophet himself but we obey the Prophet because in obeying him, we obey Allah, You know, I mean, the Prophet I mean, the reason why the Prophet is to be obeyed and to be followed and to be loved because that entails what Allah loves, and that entails obedience to Allah. Had it not been so, then we would have not shown that to the Prophet because the Prophet is just a man. So, I mean, there's no, you know, so I mean, if 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 the sisters say that we do this in order to gain. I, I, don't, I don't think she's asking this. She just sort of wants me to bring out the point that is it for Allah's pleasure to gain or for the Prophet's pleasure? We don't do to, to gain the Prophet's pleasure, you know, per se. Because our acts of worship, we're trying to win the reward of Allah's wajah. We're trying to win, you know, Allah's worship. We're not trying to win, uh, an, uh, uh, we're not, I mean, excuse me, we're, not, we're trying to win Allah's reward for our worship of Allah. And so, therefore, and we, that worship is manifested in our obedience to the Prophet but not that the Prophet becomes the, the object to which we are trying to draw close to and we are trying to win his pleasure yes of course the Prophet is happy when we obey him and he's sad when we disobey him the Prophet is happy when we obey him in the sense that because he knows that in our obedience to him lies our success and in our disobedience to him lies our destruction and so therefore he is pleased to see us obeying him because he is you know uh, zealous to see that we win paradise you know because of his concern because the Prophet Sallallahu you know he knows being the Prophet Sallallahu having been revealed to him and having seen like when he went on his journey that he saw paradise and he saw hell he knows what the reality is what we will face as human beings and so therefore he wants us to, to do that which is good so that we might win this good in that sense and also he wants us to be obedient because his reward will be you know the more followers he has that's why he said you know for us to marry you know the, the loving and the um, the loving 
a woman who bears much children, so that because he will take pride in having more followers in the day of judgment. So, uh, so in that sense, yes, the Prophet is pleased. But the point is that we are our objective is not is not we're seeking the Prophet's pleasure in that in the sense of like in, the, in a, as an act of worship. You know, we're seeking only Allah's pleasure. That's our aim, and that's who we we seek to worship alone. So. <coughs> Let's come to the next sec- uh, section now. How much time do we have? So the uh, Prophet, uh, the, excuse me, Ibn Khudama said, uh, the torment and pleasure occur- occurring to the deceased in the grave is true. The Prophet wasallam sought refuge with Allah from that punishment and commanded each of us to seek refuge from that in every prayer. The trial of the grave is true. The questioning of Munkar and Nakir is true. Alright, so that refers to, this paragraph refers to something which the Prophet ﷺ told us, and I, I alluded to, is that, you know, when each one of us is placed in his grave, the angels come to him and ask him three questions. Thank you, mashallah. And, and, and ask us uh, three questions. You know, whom did we worship? What was our religion? And wh- who was that man sent to us? Now, the believer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will confirm the believer so the believer will say the correct response. The believer will say in his grave, I worshipped Allah, Islam was my religion, and the one who was sent to me was Muhammad, the prophet of Allah. And the angels will say, how do you know that? They said, I read the book of Allah and I believed. I read the book of Allah, so it was based upon knowledge. Now the unbeliever or the hypocrite will say, uh, the, the hadith says, he'll say, ah, ah, which is a, 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 a word which is said in Arabic, uh, a sound which is made when somebody's in pain. You know, as if he's trying to, you know, jar his memory. He's trying to figure out what, what, what should he say. And then he'll say, I do not know. I heard the people say something, so I used to say it. So the unbeliever will say, I don't know what, I mean, you know, I used to, I was just following whatever the people were following. Uh, the hypocrite used to say, will say the same thing, I heard what the people, uh, I used to say something, I used to say it. And then the angels will strike him with a rod, and he will shout, um, in such a manner that if, if human beings were to hear him, the, the pain from his shout would all collapse dead. And he'll then begin to be punished in his grave. And the torment begins in the grave uh, in, in preparation for the torment he will receive in the hereafter. So this, you know, uh, but as far as the believer, the believer, his grave will widen and, you know, the, from the light and from the good scent of paradise will enter into his grave. And likewise, his good deeds will come in the form of a, of a, of a, of a young youth, you know, which will keep him company while he's in his grave and so forth. So th- there's a pleasure that will occur to him in the grave. And so he'll be wanting for the day of judgment to come because he will see what he's heading towards as far as the unbeliever who will hear the, the, or the hypocrite will have the opposite. So the Prophet ﷺ taught us to seek refuge from the, the punishment of the grave in each prayer. So this is something which is true. The pleasure that one receives in the grave is true. The trial is true. The questioning of Munkar and Nakir is true. But these are all matters of the unseen. I mean, they're not matters which, 
for instance, if you were to bury somebody and then you were to, you know, exhume that body, you know, you're not going to find any difference in the ground. So it's something which occurs in another plane, in, in another reality, is, is from the unseen. But because the Prophet ﷺ told us it's true, it's true. Even though we might not physically see the... the uh, in fact, the Prophet ﷺ said that if the people were to hear the, uh, the, the, the torment which is occurring to the people in their graves, they wouldn't bury their dead. Because, I mean, it would be people would not want to put their deceased in the graves thinking that by not burying them, then the, the torment would not come to them. Then Ibn Khudama says the, res- the resurrection after death is true. The fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise the people from their graves is true. Or after Israfil, the angel Israfil, who in, you know, in English they call Raphael, I mean, that's, that's the, salam blows into the trumpet. And then he quotes an ayah. And humanity will be gathered on the day of resurrection. And when Israfil blows into the trumpet and then humanity will rise from the earth, will rise barefoot, naked, uncircumcised, and without any bodily defect. And we will remain standing uh, until the Prophet Muhammad intercedes. See, what will happen is the people, you know, humanity will be raised from their graves and you know it, it will, people will be under great you know duress and great you know under great fear and so you know, you know some human beings will say well let's just get this over with you know I mean, just because we just they want the judgment to start because the day of judgment is 50,000 years and, and it's just you know the you know the sun will be drawn clear, nearer to people people will sweat according to the degree of their evil deeds some people will sweat their evil their their sweat will reach their ankles i mean so much sweat some people their their sweat will reach their knees some their waist some their breasts some the sweat will reach their mouths and they'll be drowning in their sweat because of of the of the fear that they have and and because of their evil uh deeds and so forth and and so some of humanity will go to adam and say oh adam <coughs> you are <coughs> the father of humanity, Allah created you with his very hands so, you know, intercede with Allah to start the judgment Adam alayhi salam will say I ate from the tree after Allah forbade me to approach it and this is a day in which Allah has, is angered and he's never been angered like this day before and my own soul, my own soul. Go to Noah. Go to Noah, who was the first messenger sent to humanity. So some group of humanity will go to Noah and say, Okay, oh Noah, Allah sent you, you're the first messenger sent to humanity. Pray to Allah that the judgment and the, it starts. Noah will say, I asked of Allah that which I should have not asked. When Noah asked that his son be saved. And this is a day in which Allah has angered. He's never been angered like this day before. My own soul, my own soul, go to Abraham, Ibrahim alayhi salam. And so they go to Ibrahim, and Ibrahim will also not want to intercede. He said, I said three lies. And so go to Moses. And Moses will say, I killed a soul without right. And this is a day in which Allah has been angered. He's never been angered like this day before. 
go to Isa, Jesus alayhi salam. So they go to Jesus and Jesus alayhi salam alayhi salam, he will not mention a sin. But Isa alayhi salam will say that go to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi salam, for he is a servant of Allah who his previous and past sins have been forgiven. And so when they go to, to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi salam, the Prophet say, yes, this is mine, this is mine. And the Prophet will then proceed and bow himself down and prostrate before Allah's throne. The Prophet said that I will remain prostrating and Allah will inspire me to say forms of praise of him which I cannot, I'm not aware of them now. So Allah will give him a revelation to, to praise him in a, in a specific manner. And then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, is, is pleased, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will tell the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to raise your head, ask and you will be granted, intercede and your intercession will be taken. So the, the creation will be judged. So the point is, is that, you know, that, that and this shows us, you know, part of the, the merit of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that, you know, that, you know, I mean, humanity as a whole you know, the judgment will not start until the Prophet ﷺ intercedes on our behalf as human beings that the judgment starts. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said in another hadith that he is the master of the children of Adam. But at the same time, he says that without seeking in any, not in, uh, any pride in saying that. This is a fact. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ informed us that you know, humanity will be raised barefoot, naked, uncircumcised, and without bodily defect. Aisha radiallahu anha said, well, you know, you know, men and women you know, will be, you know, all of humanity be standing you know, naked. I mean, how could that be? The Prophet ﷺ said the matter will be too great for them to be concerned about that. I mean, human beings will not be concerned that the fact that, you know, of the opposite sex and so forth, that, you know, and that people don't have clothes on, this is because the matter would be too great. I mean, it's too serious for them that they, they could care less about these matters, you know. Because one, as Allah says in the Quran that when a person knows that he's going to go to hell, he'd be willing to, to, to put in his place, you know, as, as, as an exchange, you know, his wife, his children, his parents, his brother, in fact, the whole world. He, he wouldn't mind. So, I mean, the matter is just too great. Anyway, Ibn Khudama says that, uh, so then Allah will reckon the creation, the balances will be erected. So, balances will be set up where, you know, and in those balances, books will be weighed, sometimes deeds will be weighed, and sometimes even people will be weighed. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you look at the different hadith and so forth, I mean, sometimes a person might be placed in the balance. Sometimes a, an action might be placed in the balance. And sometimes a person's book might be placed in the balance. And depending on how the balance comes, a person will, you know, either be um, uh, uh, victorious or he'll, he'll, oh, he'll lose. Likewise, the, the deed, the, the books of actions will be spread open. The pages of deeds will fly to people's right and left hands. And he, and he mentions a verse that as for as he who has given his book in his right hand, he shall surely receive an easy reckoning, and he will return to his family joyfully. But as for as he who receives his book from behind his back, he shall call for destruction, and he shall burn in hell. So, 
the, the point is is that you know the, everybody's book of action will fly to him and people will grab their books if you grab your book by the right hand then you'll be reckoned easily if you grab your book by your left hand or behind the back then the book that's an indication should be reckoned severely and what is the easy reckoning the easy reckoning is that the Prophet ﷺ told us that when when a believer is reckoned by Allah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will speak to the believer privately Allah will, will, will envelop the believer and speak to him privately um, and not expose him publicly and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say to his servant his believing servant did you not commit this sin during this day did you not commit this sin during this time did you not commit and, and the believer will confess to all these sins the believer will see before him he'll see the hellfire will see to his right the hellfire will see to his left the hellfire and he will think that he's going to go to hell but then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say to the believing servant just like I covered your sin in this world in other words your sin wasn't public and so people didn't notice it right such that I have covered your sin in the hereafter but as far as the unbeliever those, those, they will be reckoned publicly and that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, He who is, you know, he who is publicly reckoned in front of the angels and all of mankind and so forth, then he will be punished in the hellfire. And likewise, also those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, um, among the believers who Allah has, will not forgive their sins. I mean, they're publicly reckoned. Those are the ones who will be punished. So those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with, that's why the Prophet used to pray to Allah, you know, oh Allah, judge me the, the easy reckoning, which is a private reckoning. Because that, that's between just between you and Allah Azawajal, and you're not but those who are reckoned publicly, I mean they're they're the ones who will be I mean punished. May Allah preserve us from that. Likewise the Prophet uh, this, uh, likewise Ibn Khudama says that the balance has two pans and a tongue in which deeds will be weighed. As for as he whose scales are heavy they're the ones who uh, are prosperous, but as for he who the balance is light, they have lost their souls in hell forever. Likewise, one of the matters of the hereafter is that the Prophet ﷺ will have a, a, a big pond, a basin, which the waters are whiter than milk and sweeter than honey, and the cups around it are equal to the number of the stars in heaven. Whoever drinks from it once will never thirst after that forever. And when the people are raised from their graves and the judgment is for 50,000 years, the people will thirst because especially the sun will be drawn near to humanity. So the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, has a river in paradise called the Kothar. And this river in paradise extends outside of paradise and it goes, to, it extends and, you know, gathers in a pool, in a, in a basin, in a, in outside of paradise. And there we will meet the Prophet ﷺ before the judgment starts. Uh, and the Prophet ﷺ said that the width of, of this you know, pond is like the distance of one month's journey and its length is the distance of one month's journey. And the Prophet ﷺ will meet him there and we will drink from this and whoever drinks from once will never thirst again. Some people will be prevented from reaching the Prophet ﷺ there. And so when the Prophet ﷺ when the angels will take away these people and not allow them to reach to the Prophet 
Prophet will say, he's from my Ummah, he's from my Ummah, then, the, then it will be said to the Prophet you do not know what they innovated after you. So the Prophet will say, keep them far away, keep them far away. So I mean, imagine the sadness that will fall in the heart of a person. You know, that the Prophet will say to you, you know what I'm saying, stay away, stay away. I mean, now if, if you're your brother, right, if a fellow Muslim, you know, said to you, you know, get out of my face, I mean, you, you feel in your heart, you know what I'm saying, a great sadness. How much more so that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, says to you, you know what I'm saying, you know, keep him far away, let the angels take him away and take him to the punishment. And this is, and this is the danger of innovating. I mean, what, this is the punishment that occurs from innovation and from entering into Allah's religion, that which is not from it. And then Ibn Qudama mentions that the bridge lying over the hell fire is true. There are hadith which point to this. The righteous will cross over while the immoral will slip and fall off into hell. You see, even after we have, the believer has, has, you know, been judged and reckoned, he still has one more stage to go through before he enters into paradise. And that is going across a bridge which... I mean, this is another final test that one has to go. And the Prophet ﷺ described this bridge as thinner than a strand of hair, but yet sharper than the edge of a sword. And that it is over the hellfire. And around the bridge are, you know, trees with thorns on it. Like, you know, claws, or, you know, like, not claws, um, like hooks, like hooks. And so people will go across it according to the measure of, of their good deeds. Some people, because they have many good deeds... It will pass on that bridge like the blinking of an eye, just in an instant. And this, I mean, the bridge goes over the hellfire, so I mean, how, how long is it? And some will pass over it like a strong wind, and some will pass over it like a racehorse, and some will pass over it like a, a camel, and some will run, and some will walk, and some people will crawl, and others will fall off. And so this is, you know... This is an imp- um, how you cross the bridge. It depends on how you stand on the straight path in this world. If you walk, you know, if you're upright on the straight path in this world, and you pass on the straight path in this world, and you do not swerve, then in the day of judgment you will you will be upright on that bridge and you'll be able to pass through it. But if you swerve in this world on the straight path and you fall off, then you know your footing will not be sure in the hereafter, and you will fall off the bridge into the hellfire. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ taught us, as Ibn Qudama says, that our Prophet will intercede uh, on behalf of those from his community, his Ummah, who enter hell from those who have committed major sins. They will leave hell uh, by his intercession after they have been burned therein and have become black and cold. They will enter paradise by his intercession. Belonging to the other prophets as well, the believers and the angels are intercessions. However, Allah Ta'ala has said, and they intercede not, save for him who he is well pleased, and they tremble in awe of him. So the unbeliever, the kafir, will not be assailed by the intercession of anyone who intercedes. So the point is that when I, the believers enter into the hellfire for their sins, you see, People enter the hellfire two groups. There are those who enter into the hellfire because they haven't been purified to go to paradise yet. But they still have faith. So they will not be in the hellfire for all eternity. And those who enter into the hellfire will be there for all of eternity because they've died upon unbelief. 
And as Allah says to, them, uh, says to us in the Quran, that even after being burnt in the hellfire, if they were to be returned back to earth, they would return back to their ways. I mean, they would still return back to worshipping other than Allah and denying Him and disbelieving in Him. So, that those uh, people who, you know, when you commit a sin, there's about ten ways that, that sin has to be, can be removed from you. I mean, one way is through repentance. You repent to Allah, the sin is gone. Another way is by good deeds. Many good deeds wipe away the effects of an evil deed. That's like the Prophet ﷺ said. Uh, as Allah says, in the Hassanat uh, Yuthibna Sayyi'at, that the good deeds remove the evil deeds. The Prophet ﷺ taught us that when we do an evil deed, we should do a good deed after that. Okay, likewise, the pain and suffering you face in this world. You know, you become ill, you lose your job, you're persecuted from your religion, you know, you, you, uh, you're, you're mocked. Um, you know, you, you, the Prophet ﷺ said that Eve told Abu Bakr that even the thorn which pricks you removes some sins. So any sort of harm, or any, if you're patient and in this world, then it removes some of your sins. The fourth matter which removes the sins is the, the punishment that could occur to a person during the grave. I mean, if a person is punished in his grave for some of his sins, then some of his sins will be removed. The fifth matter is the, 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 the severity of the Day of Judgment, just waiting for the judgment to occur and on all you know, the worry and the and, and, and the, the concern that people will have, that will remove some sins. So how many do we have now? Five, okay. So the sixth matter is that the punishment that could occur to a person while he is in, um, in the uh, uh, hellfire, that removes some of your sins. And then also, then there is the intercession that it might be inter might, intercession might occur to you, the seventh matter, whether it's from the Prophet ﷺ, whether it's from uh, the angels, whether it's from a righteous believer, you know, a family member, he intercedes for you. So, that, so Allah, because of that intercession, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows grace to you and removes that sin. And then also there's just Allah's mercy. Allah removes, you know, your sins because of your mercy. Uh, out of his, just out of his mercy. So whenever you have a sin... You know, the sin has to be removed. And those are the, the ways that a sin can be removed. Now, if your sins are not totally removed, then you'll be taken to the hellfire to be purified. Because paradise is the abode of purity. And only that which is pure can enter into paradise. There, I mean, there can be no... In paradise, there can be no you know, evil whatsoever. There can be no deception whatsoever. It has to be pure to Allah. I mean, the hellfire is in the end the abode of that which is purely evil having no good whatsoever so that's why those who are condemned for the hellfire for eternity are ones that have no good in them whatsoever and paradise is the abode of pure good and this world is a mixture you know I mean in ourselves we have good and evil in our societies we see good and evil so it's a mixture so the point is is that for those believers who enter into hell due to their sins which they have not repented from nor those sins have been removed due to the ways that we have mentioned they'll eventually leave the hellfire by the intercession of the Prophet Muhammad or the intercession of other prophets or by the angels or by righteous believers and you know when, they, when they're in hell I mean they'll, they'll burn and they'll become like blackened coal 
I mean, the only parts of their body will not, which will not burn for the believers are the parts of the body which, you know, used to prostrate. So the hands, the face, the knees, the, you know, the, the foot. I mean, those are the, the, that will not burn. But the rest of the body will burn. And then it will be, you know, uh, I mean, then, then when, the, when those people will be taken out of the fire, they'll be thrown in the river of life and they'll sprout back again. But it will be stamped on their foreheads Al-Jahannamiyun, those who were in hell. So even though when they enter into paradise, they'll have that stamp which will be on their foreheads. Um, now, so the point is, is that, but however, this intercession of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu or the other prophets or the other angels, you know, there's two things we have to understand. That first of all, the intercession only applies for those who die on faith. The unbeliever, no intercession will avail him. That's why the Prophet Sallallahu you know, he tells us that Abraham on the day of judgment, Ibrahim salam, his father will come to him and say to Ibrahim, will say, I will not disobey you on today. So Ibrahim will try to pray for his father and, and, and Allah will say to Ibrahim, you know that paradise is only for the believers. See, so the, the intercession will only avail those who have faith. The second thing is that we should understand that intercession isn't like in the notion of like intercession amongst the Catholics or among the grave worshippers among the Muslims. It's not like the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam or uh, anyone else says to Allah Oh Allah, interceding upon this behalf of this person so therefore that person will just automatically go and, and so forth. No, it's not like that. But rather Allah tells the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam or tells the angel or tells the other prophet or tells the righteous believer you can intercede for this person. And then the prophet or the, or the angel or the righteous person will intercede on behalf of that person and Allah will accept that intercession. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ says. And the Prophet ﷺ says when he makes intercession for those believers in the hellfire, he says, hadden. It will be told to me who to intercede for. And so the Prophet ﷺ will intercede for them and then they will be taken out. And then it will be told to intercede for another group of people. The matter is in Allah's hand. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to you know, as as a favor which he grants to that righteous person or to that or for that prophet or for that angel, and he 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 the the, the matter appears as in the in the form that that person intercedes and the, Allah accepts the intercession. But in, initially, Allah tells that prophet or that, or that righteous person that you can intercede for this person, so the person is able to speak and, and to intercede. Let's take this last point because we're running out of time. Yeah, we have to we have to finish now, and then we can, we can pick up the questions in, in the next section uh, for um, um, this section. So, you know, paradise and hell are two creations never ceasing to exist. Paradise is the abode of those near to Him, and while hell is a punishment for His enemies, the ha inhabitants of paradise will be therein forever. And death, and then he mentions the final point that death will be brought in the form of a beautiful ram and will be slaughtered between paradise and hell, and will be said, O inhabitants of paradise, eternity and no death. O inhabitants of hell, eternity and no death. And we'll, and we'll talk about that uh, in the next section, and we'll ask, answer any questions uh, the brothers and sisters might have. Where do you want to take lunch? Do you have an office? Or? Yeah, I'll, I'll probably come down to the office. I want to take a shower first. Though. Okay, you want to have a shower first? Yeah, I have it ready in the office for you. Actually, actually it's fine. Okay, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I have to. I, I was there for. Uh, after the or now, did I say? After the
How, how many minutes is it going to take? Well, uh, oh, you got, I mean, you, this, 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 some people are very serious, so, you know, you can have to get Okay, so, all right, let me, let me, I'll come down and.